Hey there. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how to start this. Uh, my name is Erin, and in case you haven't uh, gotten the chance to listen to the first four episodes of this podcast, I'm a reporter at the Colorado newspaper in Fort Collins, Colorado. I cover arts and entertainment, uh, so I'm kind of the last person you'd expect to be diving into an unsolved homicide, uh, but that's exactly what I did this time last year uh, and again in 2017. Like a lot of people here, I'd come to Fort Collins to go to CSU a handful of years ago, and over those years, I'd heard a little bit about the murder of a woman in the late 1980s. But the story was known mostly around town because the guy who police arrested for the murder, the man who was eventually convicted of the crime, didn't end up doing it. His name is Tim Masters, and after living in the shadow of this horrible crime since he was a teenager and serving nine years in prison for it as an adult, his sentence was vacated and he was free due to DNA testing results in 2008. A few years later, he was exonerated for the crime altogether. I go into a lot more of that in the first four episodes, so give those a listen for a more in-depth analysis from investigators, experts, journalists, if you haven't had a chance yet. Um, But in this episode and the one after it, I wanted to update the listeners who had stuck by me last year and emailed me after the project went live who still very much care about this case. The reason for these updated episodes is that on February 11th, 2017, which is coming up this weekend, uh, that'll mark 30 years to the day that Peggy Hetrick, who was then a 37-year-old department store employee, was found murdered and mutilated in an empty field in Fort Collins. Her murder, like I just said, led to a flawed investigation, a trial, appeals, and that eventual exoneration, which was, as you can imagine, front-page news. But I don't want to talk about Tim Masters anymore, and I'm sure he'd do a cartwheel if you heard me say that, but I don't. This case is still very much open, and I just received a statement from the Attorney General's office to that effect. If there's one thing we know for sure these 30 years later, it's that Tim Masters didn't kill Peggy Hetrick. So in these two follow-up episodes, I talk to Peggy's old friends, experts, an investigator, even my mom. I go into who Peggy Hetrick was, what life was like back in those early months of 1987, and who could have possibly been behind the cold case that still haunts Fort Collins. I'm Erin Udell, and this is People vs. Masters, The Update. I mean, I worked, what has it been, 30, give me a second here, and do the math, 36 years here in Aurora, and then I worked two and a half years up in Weld County at the Sheriff's Office and in the military okay. before then. And what's your exact title at Aurora? Detective. Okay. Um, in the cold case unit, or how, how should right. I phrase that? Okay. Right. That, okay. Yes, that's that's it. Perfect. And just, just for the record, I am the cold case unit because there's nobody else but me working. This is Steve Connor, a detective with the Aurora Police Department. And as he says there, he is their cold case unit. When I went looking for a cold case expert for this project, his name came up immediately. He has nothing to do with Peggy Hetrick and is solely talking to me about cold cases in general. But I thought it would be helpful to have his insights here. Because let's face it, when a lot of us think of cold cases, we think of cop shows on TV. For me personally, I've had no one ever come in and confess to a case and say, yep, that's me, I'm the guy you're looking for. Um, it's primarily either, well, the predominant aspect of it is the technology, um, but you might have one or two people uh, call and give some information relevant to the case that you're able to follow up on and then you know, from that um, you know, contact additional people or understand the pertinence of a specific piece of evidence as it relates to the, you know, the recent information that had been provided. But for me, there's been 
I wish I had it, like television where they came in and confessed or, you know, you have the, you find the weapon or the evidence, you know, 20 mm-hmm. or 30 years later in the possession of the guy you're looking at. So how does investigating a cold case homicide different from investigating, you know, homicide that happened a couple of weeks ago or a month ago? Well, I think the big thing is the, the technology, both, you know, with uh, um, cell phone and computer databases and, you know, the forensics has definitely improved over the years. Um, back in the 80s, you just didn't have the technology that you have today. However, when you're investigating a cold case, um, there's just a lot of things now that you can use today's technology to uh, examine some of the things from you know 20 or 30 years ago. This is a really important point to remember when thinking about this case. 1987 was a completely different time. Nine News down in Denver shared some of their archive footage with us, and as you watch the investigators and police in the field that morning, they're taking evidence, they're making casts of footprints, tire tracks, but none of them are wearing gloves. DNA was just something that no one really thought about. To go into that a little more, the changes in technology, not the DNA, I called up the best 80s expert I know. Is it weird to, like, because you were alive back, I wasn't even alive in 1987, so you were, like, you know, you could have feasibly, like, known her. I mean, not really, like, you you lived in Maryland and stuff, but, like, you know, it it, it it could have been one of your friends or one of, you know what I mean? It was 87, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was the year. That was the year that. Um, that was the year your father and I got married. Okay, so it's my mom, but in my defense, she is an '80s expert and super inquisitive, just like me. She's also been really interested in this case ever since I put together last year's podcast. Um, yeah, it's just, and when you think about when I think about technology, when I think about difference, so back in that time, in the, in '87, I got a phone put in my car, and it was terribly <laughs> expensive. I mean, it was a like a brick, but <laughs> it was terribly, terribly expensive. So people didn't have cell phones then. You didn't have the internet then. You know, it was still some people still hitchhiked then. Um, it was a very different kind of world, different kind, different kind of time. Given all that, though, like Detective Connor said, using today's technology on evidence from cold cases twenty, thirty years old. That solves them, or can. What's like the oldest cold case that you've been a part of that's eventually been solved? Uh, the Pamela Morton case from 1981. What was the, um, what caused that to become well, solved? That one was repeated um, submission of of evidence to CBI. Um, and that was kind of a little difficult because the suspect in the case turned out to be um, a serial killer by the name of Vincent Groves, and he had passed away before it was mandatory for inmate DNA to be submitted to CODIS. So I had to track down the agency who physically possessed um, evidence that had him convicted on another case, pull that evidence, and then the evidence I had, and then do a comparison to each other down at CBI. So that Mm. took about a year. For the record, that case was solved in 2013. It had been cold for 32 years. Well, I think that's it for my questions. Is there anything else you can think to add? Any, um, you know, challenges that 
that you face when um when investigating a cold case that you that you wouldn't you know well, if you're investing the big thing is um and before I even start a cold case investigation is what evidence do I have um you know, years ago, uh, the case went cold. You know, the evidence just sat around, and some um, some of the evidence either uh, became degraded or you know was disposed of. So, making sure I have um, evidence in the case is, is paramount, and then making sure that's not uh, disposed of. And then the follow up to that is: Are my uh, witnesses still alive? Are they still around? And can I can I track them down? So, those are probably the two biggest hurdles. And then even even that is sometimes tracking down uh, relatives and finding out you know that they've either you know moved overseas, passed away. But the you know to be honest with you, the biggest hurdle for me in even getting um, I guess some buy-in to the case is a lot of times um, the family members have moved on, and I've had several cases where they go you know do whatever you want, we're not interested, we've moved on. Which to me is kind of a shocker because it's a family member, you know. That's but I mean there are those out there that do care about what happened, but I'd say probably the majority of the people I deal with don't seem to be, you know, that concerned anymore. They go, yeah, okay, you know, we'll give you what we can, but we're not, we're not invested into the case. At the time of Peggy's murder, her close family consisted of a younger brother Tom, her father Jack, and her grandmother Easy, who was supposed to see her that morning when her body was found. Tom is the only surviving one of that group. Peggy's father died a year after her, and E.C. passed away in the early 2000s. And though I've sent messages to Tom through some of his old friends and haven't heard back, I've also never been under the impression that it's because anyone has particularly moved on. This case was gruesome. It's not something you ever expect to happen, and it's probably not something you ever get over. I was able to reach a handful of Peggy's friends. One wasn't interested in talking directly to me for the project, but was willing to reach out to others on my behalf. One said he couldn't talk about it over the phone because he gets so emotional. He sent me a letter instead. And then the others who spoke to me included just one close friend, one good friend and co-worker, and one acquaintance. I probably called 20 people, and while I reached and talked to a handful, this is what I heard the most. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. Announcement for 404 Verizon Wireless. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. People die. They move, and finding them with just their names in the city they lived in in 1987 isn't exactly a walk in the park. When I sent a Facebook message to a woman named Debbie Flamio, I didn't expect to hear back, but she accepted my message minutes minutes later and confirmed that, yes, her maiden name was James, and yes, she was one of Peggy Hetrick's best friends. Well, um, I met her because she was dating um, a guy that was friends with the guy I was dating. So you dated her boyfriend, on again, off again, boyfriend, best friend. Um, yeah, yeah, they were they worked together and they were together, and that's how Peggy and I met, and we just hit it off. Um, when would that have been? I'm trying to think what year that that was. Um, oh my gosh, let's see, she died in. 87? Yes, February 87. Yeah. Okay. So um that probably had to have been maybe a year and a half to 2 years prior to her murder. Okay. 
Did you live in Fort Collins at the time, too? I lived in Loveland. Okay. Um, and so did you guys go on lots of double dates then and just hanging out and all that? Yeah, and Peggy and I just hung out. Um, you know, with, even without the guys, um, I would get off work, and I'd come and meet her. She was working at that mall behind that banana store. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, yeah, yeah. Um, she was really, really into fashion and always looked perfect, um, from head to toe. And she, um, and I would just go hang out, you know, either in Bananas or one of the other bars back then. I can't even hardly remember the names of them. Bananas, the bar Debbie mentioned, was in the square, the mall where Peggy worked. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't say I was close friends with her, but I, I, you know, I served her a fair amount of times and, um, you know, kind of observed her. This is Linda. She asked that I not use her last name, but she worked at Bananas and had known Peggy for about five years. It's kind of an Annie Hall type in a way. Um, she, um, obviously she was, you know, a little bit dramatic, a little bit, and, you know, like, like to wear hats and dress up. And um, she liked to have a good time. She wanted to go out after work and, and see friends and, and um, you know, go to the places where everybody went at that time, uh, like the prime minister, of course, and Bennigan's and Bennigan's prime minister, Moodhouse, and Bananas would be, or maybe the wine cellar too, but they would be all on that end of town where she didn't have a car, so she, mm-hmm. you know, had to um, get a ride or walk. Um, actually I had moved, helped move Sharon into her apartment, I believe on a Sunday, the very Sunday before she, um, was found dead on Tuesday, I believe. Sharon was the name of Peggy's temporary roommate, Sharon DeConnick. They were friends, and with Peggy's normal roommate Barbara in California for an extended period of time, Sharon, a native New Yorker, was staying with Peggy as she got ready to move home in a few days. Sharon is the one who locked Peggy out of her apartment that night. I go into this a bit more in the earlier podcast episodes, but I'll give you a little summary here, too. Basically, Peggy clocked out of her shift at the fashion bar that night, February 10th, 1987. She walked home only to find that Sharon, who reportedly had Peggy's keys, had locked the apartment and gone out. Peggy then bar hopped a bit and found out that Sharon had been 86 that night from a bar called the Laughing Dog Saloon. Peggy also stopped at the Prime Minister bar around 9.30 that night had a few drinks, made a few calls on the bar's payphone, likely to make sure Sharon had made it back to the apartment. And then she left. She walked home, got into her apartment, changed clothes, and headed back out again. She returned to the Prime Minister around midnight, ran into her on-again, off-again boyfriend Matt in the parking lot, and had a couple of drinks with him, though Matt was technically there to meet back up with a girl he'd just run into at a bar in the downtown area, a girl who'd eventually become his alibi for those early morning hours. Peggy left the Prime Minister around 1.30 a.m., It was the last time she was seen alive. I want to take you back to, it would have been February 12th, 1987. So that was the morning that um, it was made public um, that she was murdered. And I was wondering if you kind of remember that and if you could kind of walk me through what that was like. Oh, I definitely do. I'm talking to one of Peggy's friends and fashion bar co-workers there, Tammy Witt. And for the record, I goofed a bit. Peggy was found on the morning of February 11th, not 12th. Anyway. I was about six months pregnant, and we had an appointment that day to go to lunch. So I called a fashion bar to talk to her, 
and the girls knew that I was pregnant, so they told me, well, are you sitting down? And um, so I sat down, and they told me what happened, and I was in disbelief. And so I went and they said, it's in the newspaper. I'm like, no, that can't be true. They're like, it's in the newspaper. And it was obviously on the front page. But, um, yeah, it, it was it was horrendous. A bicyclist spotted the body early this morning in a field on the south side of Fort Collins. A trail of blood led from a road about 50 yards away into the field. Detectives say the woman had been stabbed at least once in the back. She also may have been sexually assaulted. As you all probably know now, sexually assaulted turned out to mean sexually mutilated. Peggy's left nipple and areola had been excised and was missing, and so was some of the skin in her vagina. That was the stuff that just didn't happen in Fort Collins. So, like Tammy said, it was big news. This is Nine News' archive footage from the morning of February 11. You're about to hear them interview Lieutenant Bud Reed with the Fort Collins Police Department. She was found with uh, a pair of jeans uh, down around her knees, and her sweatshirt was still on uh, the upper portion of her body. But uh, indications, uh, by the way we found her clothing, uh, Sexual assault is, is always a possibility. Detectives spent most of the day searching for clues, collecting evidence, taking pictures from every angle, making molds of tire tracks and footprints. The body was found in one of the best parts of town, a neighborhood of expensive new homes and apartments, a neighborhood where residents felt safe. So what were you know the, the following days like? I mean, it was mid to late 80s. Were you ever, as a young woman in Port Collins, ever afraid to walk alone at night, or how did that stuff change? You know, Fort Collins was never a place that I would have worried at all, ever. That's Tammy again. In fact, you know, we'd walk from their apartment to a close bar or walk from work, you know, to have a drink. Um... And yeah, it did change. It did change after that. It's been said many times before, but Peggy walked a lot, often to the neighborhood's bars for after-work drinks. It's something Debbie, remember her close friend from earlier in this episode, said they did together in late 1986. I uh, I ended up moving um, back up to Denver, oh, probably maybe three months prior to her death. So, you know, I wasn't in contact with her, obviously, as much as I was before. She didn't have a car, so, um, you know, she would have to get rides, and and she walked a lot, obviously. She was walking that night. Um, so, do, you remember, do you remember the last time you saw her? <clears throat> there was a party, I think. God, that's so long ago. I'm trying to remember. Uh, hang on a second, honey. Okay, let me finish this call, and then I'll be with you. Okay? I have a sick granddaughter. Oh. Um, I know. The last time, when was the last time I saw her? Um, I think it was after I moved, and I had come down to just kind of hang out with her for the weekend, and I stayed with her. And we just did the normal, you know, going out to the bars and mm-hmm. 
that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, I think we probably ran into Matt, but at that time they were pretty estranged. And, um, you know, I obviously wasn't with Pat anymore. So um, it was just her and I. And we probably started at Bananas and just kind of did the little route. And you, I do you came, remember? Oh, I'm sorry. Keep going. Sorry. And then I, I came back to Denver and got a phone call a couple months later. I remember I was at work. Um, I left work early and just went right up there. So what was that like? Um, I'm sure it was, I mean, I can't even imagine, but... Um... I, it, it was especially hard for me. I was a hairdresser. And um, her family had asked me if I would do her makeup and her hair in her casket. And so I did that. But it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. It was um, kind of my time with her alone, you know, and wanted to make her look pretty because she always had to have her makeup and her hair done. So it was pretty tough. but. Like I said, I kind of looked at that as, you know, our goodbye, you know, and it was private. So I was able to have closure with that, even though they hadn't found anybody yet. Now, um, fast forward 30 years, and we're still, obviously, we're still talking about this. Um, yeah, I still have a picture of her. Um, yeah, I still have a picture of her on my dresser. Did you ever think 30 years would go by and there would be, you know... Her killer no. was really out there? No. Not at all. Next, on People vs. Masters, the update, part two. Are you the one The vast majority of cases are perpetrated by people who know the victim. Yeah, out of all of them I've seen and worked, this is, this is the one that stays with me, that haunts me, that doesn't seem to go anywhere. It turns out there's a lot of evidence that the investigators almost like had to step over to, to you know, to, to keep focused on Tim. And I think that that was what really, you know, hobbled the investigation from, from almost day one. What about that Derek guy? He found uh, grip marks on the, on the waistband, on the inside of the waistband. And that's where we found, uh, th- that's a very incriminating uh, location. And that's where we found uh, male DNA. 